Well, a lot of you know that uh, Mary and I, we've been volunteering at uh, Catalina State Park three days a week. And we work in the visitor center there, and people come through and they ask some really interesting questions, as you might imagine. So we were there a couple of weeks ago, and uh, we're checking in some campers, and they're asking, hey, are there any bears here? Are there any mountain lions here? And, and if we see one, what, what do we do? And so I assured them, yeah, there, there might be some around, but you're probably not going to see them. And it wasn't more than five minutes later, another camper comes through, and they check in, and they go, hey, are there snakes and spiders in the campgrounds? And I tried to remind both these people that, you know, we're, we're encroaching on their habitat. Yes, they live here. But most of the time, I told them they're going to be more afraid of you than you are of them, except maybe for the spiders, I guess. They, you know, they don't really have much fear. And it just reminded me of how we live in, in such a fearful world, don't we? We have, we have a lot of fears. We're afraid of a lot of different things. And this morning, we're going to kind of address that. We're going to look as we continue in our study of the book of Exodus at, at how do we deal with the fears that we have. Now, some of the fears we have, they're good for us, right? I mean, it's good to be fearful of walking across the street and getting, getting hit by a car. We ought to have some fear there that would keep us from getting hurt. Unfortunately, it seems here in the Tucson area, we have a lot of people that don't have much fear of walking across the street, and we have all these pedestrian fatalities as a result all the time. It's a good thing to fear getting burned so that you don't touch a hot stove. And even if you're out in Catalina State Park, I suppose... A certain amount of fear is good. We tell people when you're out walking, watch where you're walking. Watch where you put your hands so that you don't get bitten by a spider or a snake or something like that. So so sometimes fear can be a good thing. But sometimes fear can also paralyze us. It can keep us from doing the things that we ought to do, the things that we need to do, even the things that God has called us to do sometimes, right? And we're going to see that this morning with the Israelites. They had some fear that for a period of time it paralyzed them so that they wouldn't do what God had called them to do. But fortunately for us, we're also going to see that, that as they do that, as they have that fear, that they, they do some things that eventually allow them to conquer that fear and to overcome that fear so that they can be obedient to God. Now, last week we left off in our study in the book of Exodus with the ten plagues, and I think most of you probably know what comes next. Some of you from the Bible, some of you from watching Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments. But we all kind of know what happens next, right? We know what the Israelites face. As I share with the kids this morning, they come up to this sea before them, and And they have some fears. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and take them out to Exodus chapter 14. And and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to share with you right off the beginning just three verses in chapter 14. Because they're all tied together with this same idea, this same theme of fear. And then what we're going to do from there is we're going to go and we're going to see what they did and see if we can understand what they did to overcome their fears so that they could be obedient to God. And then we're going to see how we can apply those same principles to our own lives. So the first time we see this idea of fear in Exodus chapter 14 is in verse 10. 
says this, When Pharaoh drew near, the people lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. So it says they feared greatly. I want you to see that for a moment. And why did they fear? It says they feared because they turned and they looked and they saw the Egyptians coming after them. I I would suggest to you that the reason that they feared is they got focused on their circumstances rather than on focusing on God. Now, you have to give them some credit, though, because what does it say here? They actually cried out to God. They're starting to learn at least a little bit here. But they're fearful. A few verses later, Moses gives them a command. It says this in verse 13, And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. Now we're seeing, this is really great, I think, because what we're starting to see is Moses is growing in his faith. God doesn't have to kind of prod him along this time. He says, Hey, look, people. Don't be afraid. And the reason he tells them they don't need to be afraid is because they're about to see the salvation of the Lord before them. So he says, fear not. And when we get to the end of the chapter, we see that the object of the Israelites' fear that is changed. Here's what we read at the end of the chapter. It says, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. They feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So you see what's happened over the the, the extent of this one chapter? It begins with the people fearing the Egyptians who are coming after them, and it ends, and it says now the object of their fear has changed. They no longer fear the Egyptians. They no longer fear their circumstances. They now fear the Lord. So even without looking at the rest of the chapter, we're now ready to to kind of come up with our main idea that we're going to develop today. And here's the idea that I want you to take away today, that fear gets off the throne of my life when the fear of the Lord gets on. Fear gets off the throne of my life when the fear of the Lord gets on. Now, I'm going to tell you right off the bat that this approach to to dealing with our fears, it's kind of counterintuitive to us. Because how do we tend to deal with our fears? I mean, you probably hear this all the time. This is, this is how the world would tell us to deal with our fears. Face your fears, right? How many times have you heard that before? You just need to face your fears. But we're going to see something different today, that the way we deal with our, our fears is not to face them necessarily, but to develop the fear of the Lord. So, so for instance, let's say you have a fear of trying something new. You guys have probably all heard this one before, this, that this advice. Here's how you face your fears. Never be afraid to try something new. Remember, amateurs built the ark, professionals built the Titanic. Right? Now, there's probably some truth in that. There's probably some helpful things in that. But as we're going to see this morning, the key to dealing with our fears is not to face them, but it's to develop a fear of the Lord instead. It's a different focus completely, isn't it? Now, this whole idea of the fear of the Lord, how many of you guys kind of struggle with trying to understand completely what that is? I know I do. 
it's kind of, it's almost to me kind of like the Trinity. You can kind of understand part of it, but you can't always put it exactly in words or describe it. And so I've had some extra time over the last month or so, and this is something that I've really been wanting to dig into. So I, I, I've done some more study on it. I've tried to kind of develop a better understanding myself of what the fear of the Lord really means. And as I've done that, obviously I've gone to the Scriptures, but I've also used two other books that I found were really helpful. And I don't tend to, to recommend any books in my sermons other than the Bible, obviously. But I'm going to suggest that if you're dealing a lot with fear in your life and you want to overcome it by developing a better fear of the Lord, that you might consider reading these books. The first one's called Rejoice and Tremble. It's by a guy named Michael Reeves. And uh, the second one is a book called Fearless. And it's three women who, who wrote this book. And, and in this book, both of these, they come at the fear of the Lord from, from different angles, but the two books are really complementary. I'm glad I read both of them. Because I think together they began to give me a better understanding of what the fear of the Lord is. And, and both of them kind of come up with this idea that the fear of the Lord, it's not something negative. It's not something that, that we should avoid, but it's something that we should enjoy, that it's a, it's a positive thing. I really like how Michael Reeves defines it in his book. Here's how he says. He says it's the intense love for, the delight in, and the enjoyment of all God is. That's the fear of the Lord. Don't you like that better than this idea of just like cowering in fear before God? Because that's not what it is. Matter of fact, both of these books kind of define fear that there, there, there's actually two kinds of fear. There's like a sinful kind of fear of the Lord where it is where we're, we're, we're afraid that he's going to punish us, but there's also what they call this phileo fear of the Lord, which is more this idea of really loving God. It's connected with our love for God. And so that's what we want to be able to do today. We want to be able to, to really love God together. So, so let me kind of fill in for you for a moment some of the blanks between the three verses that we looked at earlier. I think most of you are probably familiar with the story, but God tells the Israelites after the, the ten plagues, he says, go out, I want you to camp on this plain here out in front of the Red Sea. And then God tells Moses, he says, Moses, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart one more time. And so when I harden his heart, his armies, they're going to come after you. And he says, I'm going to do this for two reasons. Number one, he says, I'm going to do it so that I'll get glory. And he says, number two, I'm going to do it so the Israelites will know that I'm the Lord. We saw that kind of last week with all the plagues. That was part of the reason for the plagues. So the, Is or the, so the Egyptians, pardon me, would know that, the, that God was the Lord. And so sure enough, that's what happens. Harden, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He gets all his chariots. It says 600 chariots and all his best men, and they go in pursuit of the Israelites. And the Israelites come up against the Red Sea. And here comes the Egyptian army right after them. And it says that at some point there that the pillar of cloud that had been going before the Israelites, that it came around behind them. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to touch on, I think, what the significance of that is in just a moment. But at that time, we all know the story, Moses takes his staff, he touches the sea, God parts the Red Sea, and the Israelites go through on dry land, probably about two and a half million of them. They go through on dry land. 
And as they're going through there, the Egyptians begin to chase them. And it says that their, their chariots get bogged down in the mud. Interesting, isn't it? Israelites go through on dry land. The Egyptians, what do they encounter? Mud. Only can be God at work. And they recognize that there's some point in this story where they say, this has to be the hand of God, but it's too late now. And so the waters come in and, and drown all of them, and every single Israelite, every single one of that two and a half million, they make it through safely to the other side. And what do the people do next? They sing. That's why one of the reasons we sing here on Sunday mornings. They sing. Here's what it says in, in Exodus chapter 15, verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. And then if you read the next section of chapter 15, you see this song. It's called the Song of Moses, but as we just saw, the entire nation sang this song together. Can you imagine what that must have been like? Amazing. And then as we get a little further along in chapter 15, we find out that Moses' sister Miriam, that she also has a song too. Interestingly, same as Moses' song in a lot of ways, it says Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. That's what God does. And he does it here because what has happened in this process is fear has gotten off the throne of their life and the fear of the Lord has gotten on the throne of their life. And that is how we overcome the fears in our life. Not by focusing on the fears themselves, but by putting the fear of the Lord on the throne of our life. So how do we do that? Fortunately, in this passage, we find some very practical ways that we can take and put the fear of the Lord on the throne of our lives. Here's the first thing I need to do. I need to admit my fears. I need to admit my fears. Most of us are pretty good at this part of it, right? We, we're pretty good at admitting our fears. You see, the fear of the Lord, it, it, it's not about having this idea that nothing bad is ever going to happen to me. As we're going to see in a moment, it's this, this confidence that God's going to go with me through the things, not that nothing bad will ever happen. So it's okay to go ahead and admit our fears. And the Israelites do that here. If you don't think it's okay to admit your fears, just go read through some of the Psalms sometimes, right? The Psalms do that time after time. They come before God and say, God, this, this is what I'm afraid of. And I think it was okay for the Israelites to do that. The problem is that they dwelled on that fear so long that the fear became bigger than their God at some point. So it's okay to admit your fears. If you lose your job, it's okay to say, God, I, I'm fearful about how I'm going to take care of my family now. If you go to the doctor and the doctor says, you know, I'd really like to run some more tests here. It's okay to be afraid of what might happen with your health. If you see the stock market crash and you're retired and, and you see the value of your 401K going down or your IRA, it's okay to say, God, I, I have some fears about how I'm going to be able to pay my bills 
in the future. You're having struggles in your marriage. It's okay to have some some fears about that, that relationship and admit those to God. The problem comes, though, when we just stay there. We can't stay there. We have to move on to the next step. And this next step, I think, is the most most crucial of all. If there's one thing you could take away this morning, I hope it would be this, that I need to trust that God will be with me. I need to trust that God will be with me. As I said before, bad things happen in life. God never once promised in the Scriptures that we would go through life and that nothing bad would ever happen to us. He doesn't promise that ever once. As a matter of fact, He kind of promises the opposite, doesn't He? He promises that we we are going to have difficulties in our life. But He also promises that when we go through those difficulties, that He will be with us. He will be with us. So how do I know if I'm really trusting that God will be with me? How do I know that I'm doing that? I think there's a very clear litmus test here. If you really believe that God will be with me, here's the litmus test. Here's here's what's going to happen in your life. You're going to be obeying the part of God's will that you already know. That's the question you need to ask. Am I obeying what I already know? If 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 God lays something down and He says, this is my command, if you trust that God will be with you, then you're going to obey Him. It's that simple. And the Israelites, they finally do that. I don't know exactly at what point that they really began to trust that God would be with them, but we know that they did at some point because when we get to verse 22, we find out that they're actually obedient to what God tells them to do. Here's what it says. (coughs) Excuse me. In verse 22. And the people of Israel went out into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. At some point, they got their eyes off their circumstances and they began to realize that God would be with them. And the circumstances were pretty tough, pretty bleak, right? I mean, here they are. Can you imagine this? Think of this for a moment. Here you are. God tells you to to go through the Red Sea and He parts the sea And you begin to walk through there. And we were talking about this on Monday morning. It's like, do you see the fish over here as you're walking through the sea and the sea life and everything? I mean, is it kind of like going to to SeaWorld and going to the aquarium except with all the glass walls around you? Can you imagine what that would be like to be looking left and looking right and seeing all this, this sea life and everything? And then you look behind you. And here comes the Egyptian army. And that's a scary thing too, right? Grace, if you can go to that next slide there. That's what it would have looked like, I think, if you are going through there, right? And here comes the Egyptian army. But at some point, I don't know exactly when, at some point they finally get their eyes off of their circumstances, and they get their eyes on God, and they say, God, we're going to trust that you'll be with us regardless of what this is like. If you guys have been here for any time at all, you know that one of my favorite passages is Isaiah chapter 43. When I'm going through a difficult time, when I have a tendency to to have fear in my life, this is like my go-to passage. And I'd suggest that you mark it in your Bible, or maybe even memorize it, because because this is one that I use over and over again. When I, 
I'm tempted to fear that God won't be with me. I go to Isaiah chapter 43. Here's what it says. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I I can't help but think that Isaiah wrote this thinking of what's going on here in Exodus. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned in the flame, shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Because you are precious, precious in my eyes, because you're honored and I love you, I give men in return for you, people in exchange for your life. And then the passage, this section ends with these words, fear not. Why? For I am with you. So I want to encourage you. Use the scripture to remind yourself when you're going through those times, God's with you. The next thing we need to do here is to surrender control. Now, I'm, I'm just going to be real honest with you. Of all the principles that we're looking at this morning, this is the one I struggle with the most. I like to be in control. I'll admit it. I don't like to ride in a car when someone else is driving. I want to be the one driving. When I'm working on a project, I'd rather just, like, do it myself than to get someone else delegated off to someone else or... At least i got to be in charge of what's going on. Because all the other stupid people don't know what they're doing. I mean, come on. But that's a struggle for me. I'll admit it. And at some point, what I have to do is I have to be, I have to be willing to, to let go of that and, and, and let go of that control. Now, I'm not suggesting here that we do what a lot of people say. You know, you've all heard the saying, let go and let God. And there's some truth in that, I suppose, but the problem with that is, is that it kind of absolves us of our own responsibility sometimes. And there are things that we need to do. The Bible says that I need to, to work to feed my family, so I, I need to work. I can't just sit, sit at home and go, well, God, go ahead and feed my family for me. The Bible says that we ought to, we ought to save up for retirement. We ought to do that. The Bible teaches that we ought to eat healthy and exercise because that's what's good for our bodies. And we ought to do those things. But what we then have to do is where we have to give up control is we have to trust the results to God. Because I'm going to tell you, right, I'm going to be real honest with you, you can eat healthy and you can exercise all you want and sometimes you still get cancer. And sometimes you still die. We're going to all die someday, right? There's a 100% death rate. So you can do all the right things. You can save for retirement and have a stock market crash or have inflation eat up all your savings. That can happen. You can lose your job. So that there's some things we control. We ought to do that, but, but we have to be willing to just give up control of the results to God and let Him take care of that. Next thing we need to do is to make sure that we don't live in the past that we don't live in the past. The Israelites do that here, don't they? They get out there and they see the Egyptian army coming and they're like, God, 
why are you bringing us out here? You could have dug graves for us back in Egypt. After all, we had food back there. Yeah, it was tough, but why, let, just let us go back there. And we're going to see them do that again later on. They want to go back and live in the past. It was easier for them to go live in the past, even under all that oppression, than to deal with the unknown that they were facing. Because let's face it, God doesn't tell them where they're going to go. God doesn't tell them how they're going to get fed. God doesn't tell them where they're going to find shelter. He doesn't tell them any of that. There's all these unknowns, and they want to turn around and go back. I'm convinced that that's why the pillar of cloud went from before them and came around and got behind them. I think that was God saying to them, you can't go back. You can't live in the past. And in our culture today, I think a lot of the the, the political conflict that we have in our country today is because there are a lot of our people in our country that want to live in the past. Now, as Christians, would we like our country to go back to the way it once was, where when it was founded on Christian principles, when, when generally the, the people in our culture subscribe to those principles and observe them? Of course we would. We'd all like that. But the fact is, we can't live back there. And my fear is that we've spent, in some cases, so much time and, and effort on trying to elect the right politicians or, or to pass the right laws or to do some other things, and there's nothing wrong. I want to make it clear there's nothing wrong with those things. We ought to try to elect godly people to office. We ought to try to enact laws that reflect God's principles. But... I'm afraid that so many cases we've been so focused on trying to go back and live in the past, the good old days, the way things were, that we spend all our time focusing on those things rather than focusing on the souls of men and women and boys and girls who, if they don't know Jesus, are going to spend eternity in a place of eternal torment. So we can't live in the past. Finally, we need to celebrate what God has done. We need to celebrate what God has done. And in the Bible, there's a lot of different ways that people do that. We see a lot of different ways. We see sometimes they put up a memorial. They'll take rocks and build a memorial to God. If you've been doing our reading plan with us, you see that Abraham, a lot of times when God would do something great in his life, he would excuse me, built an altar and make a sacrifice to God. And here we see the people sing to God. That's one of the ways we ought to celebrate what he's done. There's, that's not the only way. But I was thinking about this week, what, what must that worship service have been like? Two and a half million people singing to God all at the same time? I think probably the closest I've ever gotten to that was um, back, I think it was about 1995, I went to a Promise Keepers event in Mile High Stadium in Denver. And there were 70,000 men there singing praises to God. And I, I tell you, that was an amazing experience. I can't imagine what two and a half million people singing together must have been like. But that's not the only way. Sometimes, some of you like to keep a journal and you like to write down, here's what God did in my life. That's a great way. Sometimes you can just pray, God, thank you for doing that. Sometimes you do sing. But we need to celebrate what God has done. Even the songs like we sang this morning, God, do it again. What we're doing is we're celebrating what God has done in the past. And that helps us to develop this fear of the Lord. Because we've seen this morning that the 
that the fear gets off the throne of my life when the fear of the Lord gets on. So I'm going to ask you a question this morning. What are you afraid of? What's your greatest fears? And I want to give you just a minute or two to think about that and, and to pray about that. I've given you some space to, to write that down in your sermon outline or if you're taking notes or even if you're taking notes on the app, there's a place. So just, just take a moment and think about that. Pray about that. Ask God to show you what, what, is, what are the greatest fears in your life. What are you afraid of? I'll give you a minute or two just to think about that. I don't know what that might be for you. Maybe it's fear of bad news from the doctor. Maybe it's fear of your finances. Maybe it is fear of failure in school. I don't know what it is, but I, I believe that all of us probably have some fears that we need to deal with. And the good news is, if you've just written something down, you've taken that first step. You're admitting your fears. But I want to encourage you, don't stop there. If you stop there, then what you've done today really isn't going to make any difference. What you have to do is to follow through with all those other principles that we've looked at today to make sure that you're taking some practical steps to develop the fear of the Lord and, let, and to put that on the throne of your life rather than the fear of man. One of the books that uh, I mentioned earlier had this quote in it, and I want to end with this. It says this, Fear and God are competing for the same place in your life. They both want lordship. Which one are you going to put on the throne of your life? Let's pray. Father, I think fear is something that we all deal with. And I think we've been conditioned by our culture that the way we deal with that is to, as we heard earlier, face those fears. But, Father, what you've really laid on my heart this week is that the way we deal with those is not by facing the fears, but by developing our fear of you. A healthy fear that celebrates who you are, all of who you are, and rejoices in that and delights in that and lives according to that. So my prayer for everyone joining us today, whether they're here in this building or whether they're joining us online, is that you would really develop that fear of the Lord in their life and allow that to replace all those other fears that are on the throne of their life. Father, I know that's going to look different for every single one of us, but I'm confident that you can do that, Father. And I look forward to seeing how you're going to get glory for that in the same way that you got glory when you sent the Israelites through the Red Sea 
and when you destroyed that Egyptian army that tried to come after them. Father, thank you for loving us like that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.